everyone welcome us back today we have another incredible guest now we have someone who has taught for the last few years actually and is currently working in the school system but the reason i actually brought him on is because of his military background and his military expertise and so i would like to welcome my godfather and i don't want to get his title wrong and we don't really talk about it so I'm just going to say my godfather, Lavelle Franklin, let him give you all of his titles. That sounds great. It's an absolute pleasure to join you today. Um, um, I am a military veteran. I'm very proud of that. Uh, I did 27 years in the United States military. Uh, I reached the, uh, had the pleasure to reach the rank of Lieutenant Colonel uh, in the United States Army. Uh, and I like to carry that. I wanted to carry that over uh, into uh a continuation of public service, uh, and I wanted to be a teacher. So uh, I didn't start out by uh, uh, targeting those particular uh, career paths, but uh, I really uh, think they were very beneficial to both myself professionally and as well as the people in which I served. So um, that's a little bit about how I got into the military uh, at 17 years old and uh, retired at about the age of 46. Wow, that's, so that, that's a long time. I can remember being 17. Obviously, I'm not 46 yet, but I, I feel like I've, it's already been a really long time. And so how does, how does one do that many years in the military? I've seen a lot of, like I have friends who have already retired from the military that are my age. So how do you go about doing almost three decades? It's, it's pretty uh, it's a pretty interesting uh, career path. If you talk to most uh, DOD personnel, their career path is a little different and their challenges throughout the different uh, years that they serve is a little different, and a, a little unique. I think um, one of the most important factors of managing one's career is where you're going to end up being stationed, uh, what installation, what country you're going to serve in because really those particular uh, factors uh, allow you to serve in certain positions that are really attractive to your career progression. And so, um, uh, for example, a person being stationed at Fort Hood, Texas, which is one of the largest training posts in the world, there's a lot of different jobs you can do that while you're in the military. Um, whereas if you are in a smaller installation, let's say, um, uh, a Camp Shelby, Mississippi, which is a very small post, you may not have as many jobs out there militarily that you can serve in. Um, and then, of course, there's your uh, really tough, uh, what we call joint assignments. Joint means you serve in more than uh, one particular military entity, i.e. Army, Navy, two or more services. That's a joint job. So the span of control that you have in that type of a job means that you're making uh, the decision that you're making not only affects your own service, in my case, the Army, but also, say, uh, another service, the Navy or Air Force. So person working at the Pentagon, for example, would be in a joint position, and that carries more uh, levels of responsibility. So throughout my, my uh, military career, I had a chance to serve in multiple positions that uh, allowed me to to uh, experience different levels of authority. Okay. Oh, 
okay. And all of that makes sense. I'm going to dive into that a little bit in just a second, but I actually want to go back. How did you get into the military? Like, what made you join? Well, I needed money for college. That was the, and I, and I tell people that uh, not to be fully transparent uh, because you really want to be in the military to actually serve the nation. I too wanted to serve the nation and I wanted to serve others, but I really needed money for college. Uh, my, my mother uh, who raised me uh, by herself, we, it was a single parent. Uh, uh, I was a sing, a pro, I'm a product of a single parent and there just wasn't enough money to, uh, for her to finance my education. So I either had to get scholarships or uh, uh, go to the military and so I decided to join the United States Army Reserve. So I could join the reserve for, I ended up doing six years in that. And then uh, went active duty after that. And I joined ROTC at the senior level at uh, Louisiana State University, Shreveport. And I joined that program and I was commissioned and assessed active duty. And that at that time I became a second lieutenant. And then I was able to stay in the military for uh, the remainder of that 27-year timeline. Okay. So, it, and that, I mean, I have a lot of students who have joined for the same exact reason. We just need money for college. I have a lot of friends who joined for the same reason. Mm -hmm. How do, is that a, how do I word this? Is that a, is that a righteous reason to join the military? Like, do, do you believe now that you've gone up through the ranks and you've gotten to Lieutenant Colonel, do you believe that people should join the military just because they need money for college? No, I think it's, it's a fairly um, uh, self-serving reason to join. But the irony of the whole uh, issue is once you're in, you can do nothing but serve others. There's no doubt anything that you do, whether it's hurricane duty, if you're getting called up to support that, riot control, Hurricane Katrina, for example, if the military didn't have an entity to serve communities like what we saw going on in Florida most recently, those were search and rescue teams sponsored by the Florida National Guard and other uh, military entities in not just Florida, but Georgia, Alabama. It relieves the active duty ranks from doing those type of uh, what we call homeland defense missions. And so that is really important. If you don't believe that, then ask the Floridians that uh, if it wasn't for those search and rescue team and emergency mm -hmm. response, response personnel, then they would be further behind in their recovery. And it could have potentially cost lives for the American people. Right. Okay. So that, cause that's always been my question. Just I'm telling these kids that that's an option if they, mm -hmm. if they because a lot of the kids who end up taking that route aren't kids who could have gotten academic scholarships or athletic scholarships. So it's like, this is another way you can afford to go to college. But I'm all, mm -hmm. I've always kind of questioned myself as like, am I putting the wrong people out to serve our country? But I, I've never looked at it the way you said, if you, it is self-serving to go in just for college money. But once you're in, all you can do is serve other people. That's it. And I, my oldest son, who I never thought would join the military in any capacity, and he joined and he did eight years in the National Guard. And I think he really loves the fact that he made that decision. 
And he came to me for the decision. I didn't stress him on that, but he also needed money for college because he wanted to make his own way. He didn't want to rely on his parents to fund his education. So he took the initiative to join the reserve to help augment. The other interesting factor about students coming in to uh, public service today is that not only does the Army and Navy, Air Force Marines help fund education, but you also have other uh, federal programs uh, so, uh, that assist in these, these type of scholarships, tuition assistance programs. So it's not just the military doing it, it's, it's other uh, various departments within the federal government that does it. So the other dynamic you see is, you mentioned athletes. Athletes may not have a full package, may not have a full ride scholarship, if you will. Those are less and less uh, prevalent out there across the country. So couple your military reserve benefits with your athletic scholarships or academic packages, which are uh, partial scholarships. Then you have, you just made a full ride and you're getting public service at the same time. Okay, so, okay. So you get to the army and, or you started at the National Guard level. And you mm -hmm. do that for a few years. What made you want to go from National Guard, which I know in the presentations that have been given to my students, I, they are being told it's um, one weekend out of a month and right. the rest of your time is yours. So what made you want to go from that level of commitment to the full-fledged Army level of commitment? Well, one of the unique things that happened to me while I was in college as a reservist, as a National Guardsman, is that Desert Storm happened. So when Desert Storm happened, I was literally pulled out of uh, college to deploy to Southwest Asia. So my timeline was a little unique because I knew exactly what the active duty side of the house was like because I was able to deploy to Desert Storm. So I knew even before that, I knew I wanted to be on active duty because that was the career that uh, I had chosen and I just needed to get the college under my belt to qualify to be an officer. But that all started actually in junior ROTC uh, in Cattle Parish, Louisiana, in Shreveport. So my junior ROTC instructors groomed me and made sure I was informed about how to become an officer. So I didn't get a uh, senior ROTC scholarship coming out of high school. My academics wasn't strong enough to get that nationally, because that's a national scholarship that a person is awarded. So I had to do a non-scholarship route to become an officer. So that was, that was another reason I decided to join the National Guard, not having my eyeball on the next four years, but actually looking at the next 10 to 15 years. Okay. I didn't want to struggle anymore. Okay, so you, make the jump you get you go through you get your education and you go into the army as an officer what are the different ranks because i'm obviously a civilian i've never been in any of the armed forces and while i have the utmost respect for people who could do it i'm a little more self-serving <laughs> and so <laughs> um what are the different ranks i because i still don't know them i know that well at least i've been told if you go to college, you can go in as an officer. Is that automatic? Like you will go in as an officer? 
or it's just no, it's not automatic. Okay, it's not an order. It's not automatic. Let me. Uh, and that's a really good question. It's really three three categories of ranks, regardless of you are in the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, or Coast Guard. It is it is enlisted, and that's E one, which is private, the lowest ranking, to E nine, Command Sergeant Major, which is the highest enlisted rank. So that is typically a person that comes out of high school and uh, goes into the military and progress through the ranks, kind of the old fashioned way, if you will. And then uh, as we have evolved over the last several decades, those uh, enlisted personnel have college opportunities embedded on their installation. So we have the smartest military in, in our history because we are uh, exposing college opportunity to our enlisted personnel which is critical to uh, strengthening the professional knowledge of your total force. And then you have warrant officers. Warrant officers are a very small group of subject matter experts uh, in a unique facet of the military. For example, you could be a warrant officer that specializes in maintenance. You could be a warrant officer who flies helicopters. So you specialize in aviation. You could be a warrant officer that specializes in food service and specialize in our dining facility management. So those are technicians, they're warrant officers. And then of course you have commissioned officers, which is your second lieutenants all the way up to four-star general. That is what's called the officer corps. So you need, you need a college degree to be eligible uh, to become a second lieutenant. And so that's the difference. Okay. Okay. So you go in as an officer. What is that like? Because in most jobs, you don't get to start in a position of authority. So what is it like in an army, which is, it's not all men, but it's heavily, right. it's predominantly men and not, mm -hmm. and it's predominantly alpha male type of men, at least from the experience, the, the guys I know that are in the army, the, the people in general, even the women I know in the army, they're very domineering. And so what is it like to go in as a novice and as a leader at the same time? It can be very challenging. I, I will, I will uh, be derelict in my commentary if I didn't uh, speak to that. Um, as a, you're, first of all, you're a young person. And so you're, you're, uh, the non-commissioned officers, your sergeants that are working uh, with you and for you, they are much more experienced than you are. You're, you're always going to be behind uh, to a certain degree from a technical perspective. So when you go into a unit as a second lieutenant, you've only had six months typically of officer training. So you, you, you take on those six months and then you go to your first assignment. For me, it was Fort Stewart, Georgia. So I was living, I'm from Louisiana. So I had to go to Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri to do my engineer officer basic course. So I learned how to be an engineer as a second lieutenant. That was only six months. Everybody knows that's not enough time to be a, to have a good knowledge of what engineering is all about. It's a very multifaceted uh, career path. So I went to my unit uh, in between time. I went to, uh, I became a parachutist. So I did that for four weeks, which is something that's, uh, that officers get a chance to do. And so when I got to my unit, it was, it was, it was very daunting. All of a sudden I was in charge of 30 people 
and I was signed for about $2 million worth of equipment. And so I didn't even know all the details on all the equipment, all the stuff that goes with it, how to order it, that kind of thing, how to, how to treat my vehicles. The, the non-commissioned officer corps taught me that because they are the experts in that, in that field. And so over time, when I be, became, uh, when I got promoted in the officer ranks, I got more knowledgeable. So by the time you're a captain, you have a, you have a much better warm and fuzzy about what you should be doing. <laughs> and you're ready to take command of a, of a really large incident in which we call a company of about a hundred people or so. And so then you're signed for maybe five to $10 million worth of property. And your, your level of authority is a lot different than a second lieutenant. You have four to five second lieutenants under your, under your direct control. So uh, it is very, it's an experience. And if, if you bring in ethnicity to it, you may be the only sec, uh, uh, minority second lieutenant or uh, in your actual battalion. And a battalion has five companies in it of about 500 people. So uh, you have to find your way. And it's, sometimes it's not that easy, but it, the more competent you become, the easier it is for you to thrive. Okay, let's hit more on that because obviously not having been in the armed forces, I don't, I don't think about the ins and outs of what the demographics may look like. But what is it like to be a African-American, so a minority officer? coming in well you have you have to quickly learn uh strong social skills <laughs> if you're an introverted person you kind of got to come out of your shell when you get to your unit as a second lieutenant because more than likely there's 30 second there's 30 lieutenants at a in a battalion and of those 30 there may only be five uh, african americans or uh hispanic americans so uh, you have to be uh, comfortable making uh, decisions in an area that may be a little bit out of your comfort zone. And so your enlisted personnel would be a melting pot, if you will. They would be from all nationalities, all, all genders. Uh, they'd be all from all over the country. And so uh, the truth of the matter is you really don't talk about it much. You're so in, in stride with your mission. Uh, demographics really don't come into play. You're focused on what are you competent or are you trained as an entity to get the job done? And so, you know, that's really one of the most fascinating parts of being in the military. When it's time to get the job done, it doesn't matter where you come from. Are you competent? Can you lead? Those are the questions your bosses will ask you. And if you can't, they will just look on to another person because there's always someone to step in your shoes. So do you believe, and this is going to be one of those questions, do you believe that there's truly equal opportunity in the military? I think we're in the, in, uh, you know, genuinely speaking, I think we're uh, the most equity that we've ever had. And I think it, it, it really, the gaps closes as the year progresses. And uh, really what a person wants, what a, what a colonel wants to see in their subordinates 
is their ability to get the job done and treat people with dignity and respect. If you fail to treat people with dignity and respect in today's military, you will get called out and you will be punished. So there's no room for, for inequality in today's military. Uh, there's no, uh, even if you have the perception is what we do in our uh, training, our uh, considerations of others training. If you have the, if the perception of your leadership style is hostile or not, or, or doesn't uh, present a fair, what we call command climate, then you will be dismissed. You will not, you will not elevate in upward levels of responsibility. You just won't. Okay. So that, that's not what we hear on the everyday in the politics. Mm -hmm. So is that just one of those things where it's like the bad news always gets out first and loudest? Yes. I mean, we hear the bad news because bad news is amplified threefold, if you will. And so when a soldier does something that is uh, uh, not good, that's what you typically hear about. But you're dealing with a, a total force in the millions. <laughs> and so if there's one or two isolated incidents out of a total force that's stationed pretty much everywhere in the world, that's a pretty good uh, uh, success story, if you ask me. Um, we're pretty good. And, and if you don't believe that, our um, uh, sexual harassment, sexual assault program, our equal opportunity programs throughout the DOD, they're the example of corporate America. Corporate America wants to come talk to the U.S. military. How do you conduct quarterly uh, considerations of others' training? How do you do that? What are some of your briefing techniques? Why do you not have so many uh, gender discrimination um, complaints throughout your ranks? Well, we train it. We make it a point to understand what we need to do to make things equal. We look at ourselves. We conduct after action reports on our missions. And if it's not fair to a certain segment of our population, we try to address it. Is it, per is it perfect? No, this is not a perfect science, but we do the very best we can and we make sure senior leaders understand the importance of it. There's no tolerance for inequality, none. Okay, so when it comes to the government, the military, the armed forces are a direct link to the government. Like they are actually connected. So yes. when I ask, police officers, when I ask teachers, when I ask firefighters, coaches, preachers, this same question, it's a little more distant, but with the armed forces, I know it's a lot more like it is actually connected. How does the government and politics play, like your personal politics and just politics in general, how do they play in your role in the military? That's a very good question. It's an excellent question, and there's, there's a lot to, to unravel with that, but the bottom line really in, in, in your question is, as I see it, is, is it a known commodity of what political organization or party I support? Is that discussed within the ranks? Is that something that has to do, is there, is there political discussions that happen between senior leaders? And I will tell you, I will tell you no, it, you know, 
I had no idea what political affiliation my boss was, nor did I care. And, and he or she never asked me what mine was. And so we don't discuss it throughout the day. We could be in a political, we could be in a presidential election year. And the only thing that we do politically in the military is make sure absentee ballots are distributed based on the state in which that soldier uh, is from. And that's it. We don't ask that soldier anything, but we encourage that soldier to vote because we want them to cast their ballot. That is what the voting officer and the voting NCO, that's their responsibility. So we never ask, what is your particular political affiliation? You know, and I'm, last, I'm asking about uh, often about uh, President Trump's and the challenges with uh, and the controversies in his administration. I was already retired at that point. I just retired. Um, but I will tell you that nobody never asked me about anything controversial about President Obama's administration, neither Bush and nor President Reagan. I never got any questions about it. So is it, is it not being questioned because it doesn't matter or it's not being questioned because they don't want to stir up controversy? Well, that's the reason we have a separation between civilian military authority and the military authority itself uh, headed by the general officers. So we want, we need a, we have a, our style of government provides a dual headed managerial approach to that. You have a political civilian military, uh, for example, the secretary of the army, secretary of defense as appointed by the president. And then you have the general officers who have come up and risen through the ranks. They work together to work out issues. Now, ultimately, the military is, is managed by the civilian leadership. We are charged by the Constitution to, uh, to uphold their orders. So if that order is not uh, illegal, immoral, or unethical, then more than likely we're going to execute it. We're going to execute it violently because that's what we're charged to do. Um, so, you know, that said, it really isn't, uh, we really don't think about that. We don't question that um, unless it's really something bizarre An unlawful order is what we say under the Uniform Code of Military Justice, which is the uh, 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 U.S. code that, that governs the military uh, in judicial and non-judicial punishment. We really don't question that. And so there was incidents in the Trump administration where that there was some uh, issues with that. But there are probably other issues in other administrations as well. It just wasn't really well publicized. That's why the generals have to navigate that with their civilian counterpart. Okay. So when it comes to being a part of a team, which mm -hmm. in my head, that's what the armed forces is a team. It's, it's a really big team, but it's a team. When it comes to being a part of that team, how is it, how important is it that there are differences in morals, in values, in politics, in political ideologies? How important is having that diversity? I think that that is very critical. You know, and if you look at where we were coming out of Vietnam, um, we just got we just retired the last few general officers. Uh, for example, General Powell, the late General Powell, and some of his classmates, 
those people have just now exited service pretty much all the way. So we went from a Vietnam era where there wasn't as much diversity um, into, into the Reagan years and uh, the Bush years where there started to be a lot more diversity. And so now we're starting to see uh, female general officers, uh, three-star and four-star general officers, which are our nation's first. We just saw that the last 10 years or so. So we're starting to see more diversity, but it takes time to cultivate a general officer. It takes time for a person to rise up and become an E-9, the highest enlisted rank in our army, in the enlisted ranks. It takes time to do that. You can't just uh, all of a sudden appoint a general. It doesn't work like that. They have multiple decades of experience. They can't get promoted to the next rank unless they meet the time and service requirement to be eligible to get promoted. So those are those are ways we manage equity as well. So if you are if you meet the time and service requirement, you have enough years to go to the next rank, and you have the military education to go with it, and you have good evaluations in your job performances over the years, then you could be eligible for promotion to the next rank. And okay. if you're not, you may be asked to leave service because we're not gonna keep people in the military that do not have a desire to be promoted to the next rank. Okay, that throws me into a different question than I wanted to go into this. So they can, you're rising up, but if you get to a level where you can't keep going to the next level, the military would rather you leave the military than stay stagnant in your position. Yes, because I mean, I, I wouldn't say it entirely that way, but that really is how it, it materializes because we're dealing with a pyramid as we go up. And as you get more uh, eligible to be promoted more and more, there's less of you. Uh, my, my old battalion commander told me years ago, he says, there's lo it's lonely at the top. So what that means is once you are a colonel, you really can only vent, if you will, to another colonel. You can't vent to a major or a captain. They, they don't have the same level of authority. They don't understand what you're dealing with, per se. So uh, as you move up, the pyramid is inverted. Right. And I think a lot of kids use that phrase, it's lonely at the top because it's been in so many rap songs. But thinking of it in the way of true just promotion in life, the higher you go, it's not lonely because you're losing people or because people are forgetting about you or you're forgetting about them. It's lonely because the number of people who actually have the experience you have diminishes. That's right. I was just going to say, if you're a lieutenant colonel, you may have a friend and your friend's in Germany and you're at, you're at uh, Fort Drum, New York because... I mean, there's not a lot of lieutenant colonels on a base, you know, so, you know, either you talk to another peer on the base or you talk to someone else that you already knew from a previous assignment. Um, it also it also matters with your family structure. The military spouses do not get enough credit at all, because a lot of times that military spouse who is going right there with you, on all the moves, on all the schools. They're the ones that you end up, you know, talking to about stuff uh, because they're your they're your battle buddy at home. And so that person giving you counsel is really uh, very helpful at, 
in order for you to progress through the ranks. And you can't do it without your your spouse. Your spouse has to support you. Uh, if not, you're, you're doomed for some challenges on the home front. So that was actually where I was going. That was my next question. How does being in the armed forces, how does being in the military affect the people around you? So we know you're getting the promotions, you're getting the highlights, you're getting the credit, the accreditation for being this guy who's rising through the ranks and doing these things. But how does it affect the people around you? It can affect them very uh, in a negative way, I should say. And, and let, the number one thing I would answer to that is deployments. Deployments is the factor that takes you away from your family. So obviously what that does to an adolescent kid may not actually materialize until later in life. So you not being there at different times of, the, of their development because the mission requires you to be elsewhere could have an adverse effect on that person's childhood. Now that said, what you see more often than not is, is a military brat, which is what we call our children, a military brat, trust me, it's a term of endearment. A military brat is, is gonna be a person that has friends everywhere because you may be stationed in Korea and you have friends there for two years and then you come back to the United States and now you have another group of friends. So some kids like it because they don't, they like to move around. They become accustomed to it. They actually get bored if they stay somewhere too long. It's kind of weird to them. So every kid is different. My four kids, if you ask them, it's different for them. One was more so relishing the fact to move around. And then there's others who didn't like that. They didn't like leaving their friends as much. So it's very interesting. You just have to, all in all, the military community is really tight. And most kids thrive in the environment in terms of their growth. Their scores are higher because they may attend Department of Defense schools, which are schools on military installations. They may be exposed to more scholarship opportunities. It, there's a variety of things in the pluses that uh, our families benefit from. And our military spouses, the same thing. They have college opportunities. They have opportunities to, to socialize and other wives uh, organizations that do massive work in charities, uh, soldiers, uh, emergency relief fund efforts, all kinds of things that, that are done in the military community. It's a very strong environment, but it's not perfect. So how do you deal with those imperfections then? So how do you deal with the kids who don't like moving around or the kids who grow up and they don't feel a sense of belonging because they were never anywhere long enough or they feel like you weren't there for them because you physically weren't there? Like, how do yeah. you how do you reconcile with those things after? So now you've retired. How do you reconcile with your adult children things that happened when they were kids? Well, sometimes you don't know that they were having challenges until after your, your career is ended. And, and so that's a very difficult piece. And you have to cope with that. Uh, you know, some kids may need a lot more talking to in these particular areas. Some, some kids may need, may need to talk to uh, uh, other counselors about it. Um, we're now in a, in a, in a uh, time period where you know, seeing mental health uh, counselors is not looked upon as a bad thing. 
it, it, it could be very helpful to a, a person in uh, developing their coping skills with things that happened in their, in their childhood. Um, and this is not the norm. It, it, this is uh, this is this is isolated in my view, but um, I do know of of, uh, of cases like this. But that doesn't mean that person is not going to be successful in life. That person just really learns to deal with uh, uh, what happened in their childhood, and they move on. And typically, they live lead a very positive life. So I think when it. When it comes to counseling and mental health, I feel like, so you know me, I believe, I go to counseling every week. I believe counseling is incredibly important to everyone, but I would, mm -hmm. I would assume it's even that much more important to someone who has been deployed in a war, someone who has to leave their family. For long. Even if you're not being deployed for war, if you're leaving your family, your spouse, your kids, for long periods of time and then having to reintegrate yourself into the family dynamic, I would believe that counseling is important, even more important for those people. So what does counseling look like for the armed forces personnel? Man, we might need a separate podcast for that one because <laughs> I've seen over my three decades, I have seen that change so positively. I really, I really has seen, a, that has been um, an overwhelming overhaul in terms of what it was in the 80s and 90s. For example, um, you had to reveal when you had your security clearance. When I first came in, you had to reveal that you were receiving uh, mental health services. And you had to be very reluctant in revealing that information because if that got back to uh, your first line supervisors, your chain of command, that may not have been a positive thing and it could affect in an indirect way your upward mobility. Now that's the ugly truth. So, but we're not there anymore. We have general officers who are open and honest and very transparent about their mental health services that they take on pretty uh, uh, routinely at this day and age. Because of the massive amount of combat time we've accumulated in the last 22 years in, in Iraq and Afghanistan. We're talking about a massive deployment. Soldiers being deployed, deployed multiple times, not once, multiple, three, four, five tours of combat. So obviously they're gonna need some type of mental health uh, services and that doesn't stop with them. That's, that also starts with their, their spouse and potentially their children. That person is gone and the level of worry and um, uh, dealing with current events that's going on in theater, it, it, it's take, it takes its toll on our military community. But we're very strong, we are resilient, and we have surged in mental health, uh, behavioral health specialties and on post facilities, as well as off post facilities to uh, allow our service members both in uniform and out and their dependents to see mental health. It's part of our TRICARE medical services. It's no longer a, a uh, phenomenon, it is routine. It is something that is, that is like any other uh, healthcare services that a person might need. So if you need the help, get it. Um, and, I, and I think that's important. And I'm, 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 I'm happy with what the VA is doing with their behavioral health services. It's open. 
Even if you live in the middle of nowhere, now we're doing telehealth, mental health services. These things are very valuable to helping veterans that live in remote locations. So it's, it, we're in a positive way and we're gonna continue to get better. We're now doing uh, educational incentives for people who wanna go into the behavioral health. We're cultivating our own behavioral health uh, specialties and we're training them at Fort Sam Houston, Texas in San Antonio, home of all the medical uh, experts in our Department of Defense. We're doing great things in this area. Okay, so I, I had thought, you said something I just hadn't thought about. You said in the last 22 years, there's been mass deployments. And I thought to myself, well, yeah, but I'm 30. So the last 22 years of my formative, like I can remember those years. I don't remember what was happening prior to, realistically, 9-11 is one of my earliest full memories. Like mm -hmm. I can remember what I was doing, where I was, how that like how that day went from the moment they shut our school down and we went on lockdown till I got home yeah. that night and saw my dad on the couch to hearing from my grandma who lives in New York and worked in the World Trade Center. Like I can remember the yeah. full gambit of those things and I was nine. So it, so it has been the majority of my life we've been a part of this war. So do you think the increased mental health services are a reaction to the, the fact that we were in a war for 25 years? I think so. I, I think that has a lot to do with the demand of mental, hurt, mental services that's needed. Uh, now, I would argue that uh, Vietnam uh, veterans also suffered from PTSD and, and effects from war. Uh, in a very uh, direct way. But back then it just wasn't um, as talked about. It wasn't, um, the services wasn't as available uh, within the ranks. Uh, there wasn't a, as many uh, mental health professionals available, neither in the civilian nor military community. So those services are now entrenched on military installations. And so you're able to leverage those and your chain of command is not gonna give you a hard time about it. So if you want to be a, a colonel or something, you know, whether you are in a behavioral health regiment really isn't anybody's business, but you and your doctor. So, but it's difficult. Okay. So do you think most military personnel are getting mental health, mental health services? I wouldn't say most. Um, I would say that it's, it's growing each year. I would say that uh, one of the ways we're, one of the ways that I see this is working is that stressing the availability, showing people where they can go for counseling, getting them comfortable with uh, counseling uh, teams, behavioral health teams, uh, actually helps facilitate the messaging. Um, uh, it, it really is, has changed a lot in the last 30 years. And it's no longer look, it's no longer frowned upon at all. If you need the help, go get it. Um, the only challenge that I see really is we need more behavioral health specialists. And I know you said the military is training and working on training those people in those areas, but outside of just training your own, what in what ways, and you may not know because you're outside, you're not outside of the military. I know. Most most veterans follow 
what's happening in the military very closely. So what yeah. are they doing to increase those numbers to get that word out, to publicize, if you will, the need for more behavioral health specialists? Well, one thing we're doing, we're embedding behavioral health team at the brigade level. So the brigade level might be uh, 3,000, 4,000 soldiers in a unit under the command of a full colonel, 06 commander. And so we, we have behavioral health teams that are now, you know, they could be a part of the actual unit. So you could be exercising with a member of the behavioral health team in the morning for physical training, as opposed to when I first came in, you, you had, didn't have any behavioral health uh, uh, experts on your base, potentially. You had to be, you had to go see your regular doctor and then your regular doctor would have to refer you off post. And that referral process may not have been really streamlined. But as we got more and more combat veterans because of Afghanistan and Iraq, we had to really meet the demand. And so that's where you saw the increase in behavioral health capabilities. We have it in the preserve component, by the way. We are, we're actually able to activate personnel in those medical units that can go provide that service to uh, deploying uh, service members. And we also have our family advocacy uh, uh, service uh, civilian personnel on our military installations to address the need of our families in behavioral health. Okay, so now let's move post-retirement. What, what was it like making the decision to retire from the military? Well, that was, that was, that was difficult. Um, um, the decision to retire, you always are gonna second guess it if you ask me. The body tells you if you are ready in a lot of cases. And so my body was telling me that it may be time. Uh, I'm still a pretty athletic person, but I'm not as athletic as I used to be. And I, and I saw that. And you wanna be able to keep up and really be able to uh, be more physically fit than your youngest soldier. <laughs> and so nowadays, some of these soldiers are former athletes and they, they, are, they are super athletic and they will leave you in the dust. And so as a leader, you wanna at least be able to, to, uh, to stay at their level. So to tell you the truth, I didn't want to be embarrassed in front of my troops it is, is part of my decision. My wife really supported me staying. And I, I am so blessed to have her because uh, a lot of times the spouses, they get really tired of, of, uh, of a really long military career. Uh, my spouse was not that way. She wanted me to stay in. If it was up to her, I probably would still be in, literally. <laughs> She loved moving around and that kind of thing. So uh, I had to go brief her on my plan to retire and kind of sell her on what was going to happen after the military. And uh, and she eventually accepted that. But she was probably my toughest brief. She was tougher than my, my general I had to talk to. So uh, I, I'm for real. So um, you have to have a plan. You have to be uh, in a financial position where you can either retire and not work anymore, which most people aren't. Most service members don't wanna not work anymore. Even after 30 years, they wanna go do something else. Or you need to have a desire to work and give back. And for me, it was teaching. I wanted to teach young people because that's where I came from. I would be nothing without 
junior ROTC. It really wouldn't. And then ROTC at the senior level. So I wanted to do that. Plus, I like it. And my my time at Grambling State University, uh, being in charge of their ROTC program, I knew for sure that I wanted to teach after that assignment. So you went and you started working in a public high school as mm -hmm. the junior ROTC teacher or leader or uh, instructor. instructor. Yeah. So how did that differ from being in the actual forces, in like having your own battalion? Oh, that's, that is, that's an excellent question. <laughs> and I laugh because the level of authority I had when I left service, I was a deputy brigade commander. So I was in charge of a lot and, uh, and it was stretched over not only Fort Hood, but Fort Carson and Fort Bliss in Colorado and uh, El Paso. And so we had units everywhere. And so uh, I went from that span of control to just two other uh, instructors, I'll be in the third, and then no staff. So I had a staff of about 150 people and I had to make sure that they were able to do their jobs and I was giving them the, the necessary leadership and guidance for them to function, which is a day-to-day -day task. But teaching, you're in, you're in charge of yourself and your cadets. It's a whole different paradigm of uh, responsibility. And and uh, some some military members are like, hey, you're going to take a knee now. You're going to teach. Wait a minute. It's not taking a knee teaching. You're even more engaged in some ways because you have to be prepared to teach a multifaceted group of young people and get them to the next level. And it is not easy. Couple that, the most challenging thing is I don't speak Spanish. And so uh, my, my particular cadets here in the Metroplex, I mean, we were at 98% uh, Spanish speakers at my school. And so I started to try to brush up on, on Spanish because uh, that was a different challenge that I didn't really uh, bank on really. I didn't think that through until I was faced with it. So, but I embraced the challenge, I love it, but it nevertheless, it's not as the same as teaching and say uh, my time in New Orleans or uh, uh, Kansas City when I was a captain teaching there, totally different. No one spoke Spanish. And when I say something, I can brief, I can lecture really fast, when you have a, a group, a, you're a teacher. When you have a group of uh, Spanish speakers, you have to be methodical in how you deliver your presentation. You have to, you may have to do it twice, or uh, that that is a huge challenge. And then you have to deal with the, the parents, who typically speak less Spanish than the students, and you need the students to help translate. It's really a different dynamic. But I was really excited about doing it because I knew I was actually helping people. No doubt about it. So you were, like you said, the school you were at, your cadets were 98% Hispanic. So you mm -hmm. are giving these students who, in a lot of cases, just realistically, the Metroplex you're teaching in, where we are, a lot of these students may not be legal citizens. And if they are, their parents may not be. So you are actually giving them a way to have a future in our country. Yes, 
Yes. <laughs> so when you're doing that, a lot of a lot of people assume incorrectly, I would say, but I, you can correct me if I'm wrong, that as someone as a member of the armed forces, you are almost like a guardian of the American Constitution. And so how do you combat being someone who is teaching undocumented citizens or undocumented immigrants when being an undocumented immigrant is quote unquote wrong? Mm -hmm. Well, the number one thing I think, you know, and I was talking with my other members of, of the uh, other JRTC instructors, the number one thing is to treat everyone with dignity and respect, no matter where you are. And so you may, assume, you may assume that most of the undocumented personnel is coming from Mexico. I would tell you that that's not simply true. You may have an Ecuadorian, you may have someone from Nicaragua, Honduras, you're gonna have a melting pot in your classroom. And it really doesn't matter where they're from if you treat them with dignity and respect and you don't show any favoritism. You treat everyone on an equal playing field. You, you expose everyone to the same incentives, to the same college opportunities, and you treat people and have an open dialogue. They need to learn you because by learning, uh, by you opening up to them, that makes them feel a heck of a lot more comfortable about what you're teaching. If you just get there like a professor and just start lecturing, that, that style is not gonna work here in Dallas. You have to be in, you have to be embedded in the uh, courses that you're teaching. And if you do that, you have a lot of success. Yeah, and so you, every teacher I have on falls right into that same discourse of you can't just go in trying to teach your content. So I've had English teachers, I've had a culinary arts teacher, and now I have junior OTC, and they're all saying the same. You can't just go in trying to lecture, trying to give content. You have to build the relationship with the student. Is that Absolutely. different than being a leader in the military, or is that something that that military training and that leadership training that you get from the military carries over into education? I think it carries over. I really do. I mean, uh, you know, every six months we get uh, what we call considerations of other training. It's required by the Department of Defense. So every soldier has to go through training semi-annually and sometimes quarterly. Um, and so in that training, you learn to treat people how you want to be treated. And so if you take that in the classroom, I just don't see how that's any different. And, uh, you know, coming from a, a very poor area in Louisiana, it really is like easy for me because I was in their shoes not too long ago. And so if it wasn't for the military taking me in, teaching me different things, then I wouldn't have been able to, to uh, develop my leadership skills. And nobody's leadership skills is perfect, but at least you have your experiences that you can leverage off of. And I think our young people, they have their own experiences. They will teach you about things. If you don't watch it, they will teach you. And it's very refreshing after the fact. Uh, for example, I had a student from uh, a small um, ethnic, group, ethnic group in um, uh, Nicaragua. And so 
the assumption was that he spoke Spanish. He actually didn't. He spoke a dialect. And if you didn't, if you didn't talk to him, you you would never have understood that. So there's some unique facets to culture of every one of our students. And then we have to bring that together. And your class has to be, has to, your classmates has to treat others with dignity and respect, regardless of where they came from too. That's part of what we got to do too. So how do you cultivate that in a classroom? It's difficult. First, you have to treat everybody. Uh, if you if you adopt some of the military customs and courtesies, for example, we may start the class with um, reciting the Cadet Creed. So the Cadet Creed may be something that someone easily understands from this demographic and, and another person that they don't understand it. Or they may recite the Pledge of Allegiance. That's even a better example. Kind of a universal thing that most American students learn very early on. Well, it may not be learned very early on if you wasn't if you didn't have American elementary school education behind you. So you have to reteach some of those things and you have to talk the why more so too. There's sometimes you have to tell people why it's important. And, 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 you know, some of the students will tell their classmates why that is something we're doing. And we do a lot of cadet led teaching as well. We'll, we will educate the seniors and the juniors and have the seniors teach the freshmen certain tasks. Not, not, any, not any classroom teaching per se, but they will act as an assistant instructor, that kind of a thing. Really important to that senior's growth going into college and very important to that freshman's growth to get a peer to teach them. And then next year they will be teaching someone. And even though it's a peer, it also creates a hierarchy of respect. Like absolutely time served, experience in, does give you a certain level of respect that simple knowledge doesn't give you. It helps to be coupled with that knowledge, but just the experience gives yes. you a certain level of respect earned because I made it through. Exactly. And then that, that teaching becomes ingrained in your persona as yeah. when you leave high school. You take that with you, and we call it, you're keeping that in your rucksack, which is like a backpack. So you keeping that knowledge in your backpack. So as you go into whatever field of, of uh, you go into, you take those values. We call them army values. You take those values with you. And so when no one's looking, are you doing the right thing? That's hard. <laughs> Nobody's going to see you steal that piece of bubble gum in the store. But you know you stole it and you know it wasn't right. So you're supposed to not, you're not supposed to do that is the idea so i only have two more questions because i don't want to take okay. up too much of your time but the in my head the difference in being a military personnel and the difference in being an educator as part of the public school education system your affect your disposition has to be different um first is that true and then if it's true, how did you shift from one to the other? Well, there's a reasonable, ex reasonable expectation on a new teacher who's also military background 
or it could also be a new teacher that's a that's a former police officer or fireman. Uh, the expectation is that you're a little bit more structured, that you have a routine typically, and you you have displayed leadership of some kind in your previous organization. So how are you going to apply that? People are kind of looking at you and how are you going to apply that to our school and engage the challenges that we're having at the school? What kind of leadership philosophy can you apply to that? And that's kind of hard for some people because everything is planned out in the military. Everything may not necessarily be planned out over a long term in a school. You have to shift and adjust fire in, based on test scores, based on uh, uh, grades that are coming out, how kids are doing, or they're interacting with others in a great way. You may have to go back and readdress some of those and apply different techniques. So it's really, it's really a different shift. But military personnel typically can make the transition. And that's why a lot of senior administrators like military personnel because we know how to follow orders, but yet we're not too we're not afraid to roll up our sleeves and get into uh, the eaches as well in a respectful way. So you talked about that shit. So you have to have, first, structure is easy when everything is structured for you. That's, yes. that's the first piece of that from what I got from what you said. Just it's easy for military personnel to be structured because you're not the one structuring. You're getting structured. Definitely. Definitely. So when yes. you move out into that different arena, whether it be education, whether it be being a police officer, whether it be working at Walmart, you now are creating the structure for some, mm -hmm. for especially in education. I mean, being a tenure teacher, we create the structure, if not in the school, in our classroom, for sure. Mm -hmm. um, and so if you don't have that ability to create and build structure versus maintaining structure, it could be a little daunting but you're saying military personnel have also been taught adaptability. And so they figure yes. it out. Typically they figure it out. And, and, uh, and you don't have to be a 20 year vet of the military to figure out. It could be a person who's done six years in the military and then transitioned to become a certified teacher. They typically uh, have a plan. They adopt a plan and they, they're able to adapt. It's not perfect, but they at least get on a game plan. And um, uh, to convey that message to your administrator is typically received pretty well. If you have a plan, that military that administrator will listen if it makes sense, and is and if it's something that's within their particular guidance. Okay. So, what do you do when you when you feel like the structure that you need? In, in your classroom, in your junior ROTC program, doesn't, is held to a different expectation than what the school in general is? Well, the first thing I do is uh, I talk to my other JROTC instructor. So content teachers typically cluster within their content. JROTC teachers are, are probably even more <laughs> clustered. And, and typically, if I don't talk to my battle buddies about it, here on the campus, I'll probably go to another school and talk to some other uh, JRTC instructors. So that's really critical in our uh, seeing ourselves 
and actually getting better at what we're doing. Um, but if I can't do that, then I could actually uh, re request the office call with one of the, with the principal. I'm always able to do that. Um, and your AP or go to another uh, department head of some kind. What's critical is if you have a good relationship with your principal, if you have a work, it may not be perfect, but it may be just a relationship that's workable and that you are, that principal is approachable, which most of them are, then that goes a long way in deconflicting anything. But if you have no dialogue whatsoever with your administrative team, when a challenge does come up or a change that's controversially controversial that needs to be applied and adopted, it's more difficult. And I see that in this job every now and then. Okay, so that brings up my next question. You've moved into a different position. What is, what is that position and what is that like? I'm the deputy director of Army Instruction for Dallas Independent School District. We have 21 Army JRTC programs and we have one Navy, one Marine Corps. So we have 23 uh, JRTC programs in Dallas Independent School District. Additionally, we have 21 middle school uh, uh, JRTC programs, if you will. We call those LCC programs. And so they are uh, sixth, seventh, and eighth grade uh, smaller uh, uh, ROTC programs, if you will. And so, uh, you know, we have a lot of units within the Dallas area. We're one of the largest JRTC programs uh, in the country um, in terms of how many. Uh, schools we have under our leadership and uh, have uh, not only military budgets and equipment to manage, but we also manage uh, the school district gives us a budget as well. So we're pretty, um, this job is a lot different from being the, uh, the colonel on campus at my old high school, but uh, it's a challenge. Some days are good and some days are, are a little bit challenging. I've only been doing it now for six months. So I'm still learning, but the people are great. The uh, members of the school district that I've been working with, they're very uh, uh, go-getters. They're, they're really positive people, which I'm happy to see because I didn't know what they were gonna be like. I didn't know. And so I was concerned that they wouldn't be uh, real strong supporters of what we're doing. And I'm happy to say they are. And so it's a big transition, but, uh, I think it's worthwhile in a lot of different ways. I miss teaching kids though. I don't get a chance to do that, but I am able to go to more campuses, more, I'm able to interact with more cadets and deal with more with uh, issues as they relate on that particular campus. So it's fun. Okay. So it, does it follow the train of progression or the train of promotion that you took while you were in the army? or while you were in the military? Does this follow that same progression almost? Not really. I'm pretty, pretty much capped out. Um, there's, my boss is, is, uh, is, is a position that I can move in uh, if I'm selected for it as the overall director. Uh, but typically that's about um, most people, most colonels stop at that particular level. So we retire from the school district from these positions. Okay. Okay. And so what made you want to move up to that next position? 
and move out of the classroom? Well, I wasn't so sure that I did. I had to research it uh, because I really enjoyed being the senior army instructor uh, at a high school. And um, so I, it was a little bit of an unknown what this particular job would be like. I'm dealing with a lot more personalities, uh, a lot more uh, uh, resourcing uh, decisions, but um, I wanted to make a difference for more kids. And, and I'm able to do that in a different way in this job. Okay. Okay. So my last, this one actually isn't a question, which is how I can phrase, I only have two more questions. This statement is <laughs> give, give us your public servants announcement. So what is, if you could tell all public servants one thing, um, what, what piece of advice would you give them? Well, one thing that, that we're looking at pretty closely is, is uh, STEM initiatives. And uh, there are so, the nation need, is going to need a lot of people that work in robotics, the cyber uh, realm, uh, drones. Um, they're going to need to work in these, these highly technical fields. And we're going to be, we need to continue to coach, mentor our young people on getting into those fields. Yes, there's more math. Yes, there's more engineering, but also they're going to be the highest paying positions. They're going to be the most, uh, some of the most important positions in terms of defending the homeland defense, defending our nation against computer uh, and cyber attacks. Those are the career paths we need to continue to service uh, for the future. And we must encourage young people to go into those fields and, and get interested in those areas. That, that, that works for me. We need more science, math, engineering, technology-based fields of study. And a lot of the schools, I've, I've noted, a lot of the schools have STEM programs and STEAM programs to pick up that initiative and really um, incentivize students to go in them and a lot of the school districts as well have a lot of incentives for teachers to go into right. those fields as well. And so I think we mm -hmm. are moving in the right direction. Um, Me too. I wanna say again, I appreciate you for coming on um, and sharing all of the knowledge. I could have asked a thousand more questions about the military um, because they did kept popping up, but I also didn't wanna ask too many menial questions because I wanted to get to some of the bigger ideas. So it is very likely that I'll call you again at some point and have you on again, um, maybe as part of a panel with multiple military um, veterans, maybe with some current serving military uh, uh, personnel, um, because I, I think it's important to get to know more because I think whether it's purposeful or accidental, the military is very closed off. And so civilians don't know a lot about what happens inside the military. And I Correct. think a lot of us are really interested. And even more than that, I think a lot of young people would be more interested if they knew more about it. Um, yes. Because the stigma of the military is very negative from the outside in a lot of spaces, just from what I've seen and from what I've heard from students and parents. Um, it's always been something I push because every single person I know who goes into the military, except for one, goes into the military and then comes out a better person. And so I really feel like having that 
like having that experience of me of just the people I know go in one way or go in as one type of person and they come out more open-minded, they come out more well-rounded, they come out more educated. Um, I think that all alone is enough benefit outside of just how much it pays, outside of the health benefits you get, outside of the paying for college and having college programs for your kids and your spouses and all of those things. One of the major benefits is just it does change your life for the better. Um, yes. And so I appreciate you coming on to answer some of those more wide scoping questions. And Absolutely. I look forward to having you again to come on to answer some of the more specific questions and talk about mental health and talking about how politics are involved in it and talk about the diversity part of it and talking about what education looks like getting to and leaving the military and the plan and how to get from one place to another. Um, Cause like I said, you, you aren't just someone who's close to me and someone I know I can talk to, but you are incredibly well-spoken obviously. And you went, you went through the ranks and you started as national guard. You started, I don't want to say at the bottom because I don't even know if that is the bottom, but you started at a level that everyone can enter at and you worked yes. your way up. And that's totally different than jumping in because you have legacy one way or the other. Mm -hmm. And so I just, I, like I said, I appreciate you coming on. I look forward to really getting to talk to you more and more in depth about it eventually if you would like to come on again. Um, yes, I will. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? Well, I just thank, thank you for the opportunity to, uh, to have me on. Uh, I'm always looking for uh, opportunities to to share in uh, my experiences and uh, hopefully uh, address questions that people may have about the United States military. Uh, I, I hope that everyone understands that we are ambassadors of our military. And so I would like to uh, share information. And sometimes it may not be uh, the most, I'm, 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 I'm pretty candid, at least I try to be. And so um I think that's what our young people need. They want to hear uh, candid feedback. And um, if you tell them about different uh, aspects, they're going to go research it as they should. And so I want them to be able to have an open dialogue with service members or former service members. I think that's really positive. Absolutely. And with that being said, this has been another wonderful episode of Public Servants Announcements with Lieutenant Colonel Lieutenant Colonel Ladero Franklin. Thank you. Uh, thank y'all so much for listening, and we'll see y'all next week.